0: Hello everyone and welcome to another Daily Objective and today the show is a bit unusual so I'm the sole host and I'm going to talk about my political journey from Marxism to objectivism and this is not the journey like some people the usual story which is oh I was a Marxist when I was 16 But then, you know, I changed my mind. I was a devoted Marxist, I was 29 to 30. So now you could say, who cares? But I think it's an interesting story because it shows how people form their ideas, but also how people change their ideas. And that's what I find quite important. And also there were a couple of people who asked in comments to do this episode. So a bit of background. So I come from Greece. And the historical context in Greece is very important in how people develop their politics. So Greece, after the Second World War, had the Civil War in which the left, the Communist Party, which was played a big role in the resistance against the Nazis, lost from, let's say, the bourgeois world and the royalists, and the left was persecuted basically for decades. And there was a dictatorship in 1967. So the left in Greece was basically free to express itself only after 1974. And this came after the dictatorship collapsed. And part of it was the revolt, a revolt that actually my parents were active, but my mother even more So growing up, I had this idea that the left are the rebels. The left are the ones who are for freedom actually. So the idea was you had the Nazis and the left were against it. Then you had like this parochial conservatives. And again, the left was against it. And who was dominating the arts, uh, the culture? It was clearly the left with some very charismatic people in terms of music, poetry. So the idea was that if you're someone who is interested in ideas, interested in culture, interested in a beautiful, let's say, sense of life, then what's your only option? The left. Now, you could say, and this is going to come up quite often in this episode, that all this is a rationalization to, let's say, explain my past mistakes. That might be the case, and yet what I'm telling you is what actually happened. So when I was 15, it was the first time that I bought the, com- the, the newspaper of the Communist Party. It was the anniversary of the revolt of the Greek students in 1973 against the dictatorship. Again, my mother was a protagonist in this, uh, a protagonist, very active in this revolt. And actually she was in hiding almost for a year because if she was captured, she would face torture and very bad things. So let's say in her honor, I bought the newspaper of the Communist Party. And it was the first time in my life I saw the stickle and hammer and the slogan, proletarians of the world unite. And, but after that, I kind of forgot it for some months. And then in the spring of 1999 was my political awakening. And in Greece, the left, but also in some parts, the right, is very much characterized by anti-Americanism. And this has to do with the role of the United States in the civil war, but most importantly, with the role of the United States in the Greek dictatorship and then with of what, as we say it in Greece, of the betrayal of Cyprus and its occupation of the northern part by Turkey. So in 1999, two things happened. The Kurdish leader, Abdullah Ocalan, was in a way handed in to the Turks by a mistake of the greek government so there was a huge level of outrage in greece so the idea was see the greek government is still puppets of whatever the americans or the israelis say because back then turkey and america and israel were more of allies but even more that a month later in march of 99 we had the nato invade the nato bombings in serbia and again everything fit together so Serbia, which is like our Orthodox brothers, and there's this very close tribal, let's say, but not necessarily, relationship between Greeks and Serbs. So our friends, who also happen to be a quasi-socialist country, is attacked by the powerful of this world. So again, everything made sense. And that was my biggest political awakening. That's when with other people at school, we put on posters uh, blaming Clinton, and blaming NATO and giving our solidarity to the Serbians. So the biggest part of my teen and, let's say, most post teen life, my relationship with the left was mostly related to anti-Americanism, which was its most prominent expression. And again, context is important here. Anti-Americanism is Greece was so powerful that Greece was a country that the urban guerrillas or the terrorists of the group 17 November, which was the most long-lived terrorist group in Western Europe, up to a very certain point, they had a significant support within the population, mostly because they targeted Western targets and American targets. Now, again, you can criticize this however you want. I know it. I'm just giving you the facts, what the situation was. Now, my political, let's say, uh involvement became first time really serious around 2005 when i joined the communist youth the youth of the greek communist party and the reason i did this was the following and i said look it's undeniable that the left are the good guys and in a way even the right approves of that so the right the conservatives in greece we say well we honor know the struggles of the left and we honor the history of the left Uh, it's just that you know sometimes they take it too far or their means are not good or yeah maybe you know don't go to the extremes of communism but more or less morally you're okay so i thought okay then let's find who is the most consistent and also the most serious that's why i joined the communist party the communist party in greece was a marxist leninist party is still today That was one of the only parties in Europe that did not denounce Soviet Union. And that basically remained an orthodox communist party. So I thought, well, everyone is telling me that sticking to your principles is praiseworthy and that the left is generally right, uh, correct. So let's go with the serious thing. And indeed, the communist party, the Greek communist party is a great school, let's say, of understanding Uh, political engagement because they take what they do very, very seriously. So there were days that I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning to go join the picket line or be engaged in steward teams where we had to protect strikers or protect our groups from attacks from anarchists or the extra parliamentary left because that's how political life is in Greece. So it was a very, very interesting experience. And I would say I was good at it. So I was—I think I was a good activist, so, so to speak, because I, I took it very, very seriously. Then at some point around 2006, I moved to the UK to study. And again, I, I remained a member of the communist youth. I would start my day by reading at the internet, the newspaper of the communist party. And the first major change happened in 2008. In the in December of 2008, there was a revolt, almost a similar to what's happening nowadays with the Floyd uh, with uh, with uh, the riots in the United States. So a police officer sought a 15 year old boy in the counter cultural stronghold of exarchia. And basically Athens was burning For days. There were protests, occupations, attacks to police stations. Now, we experienced this, the, the Greek community of the university, in a very strong way. So, for some weeks, we were even split, like the left wings versus the right wings. And I think that was the point I reached kind of the peak of what I would call a nihilistic kind of unprincipled stance, so to speak. So I said, so the Communist Party, to its, you know, to its credit, immediately distanced itself from, from, from the riots. So I was like, wait, here we have a quasi-revolutionary situation. So, you know, we should be, we should be, we should be part of it. And now looking at it in retrospect, it was in, in a way, it was distractions for distractions' sake. So yes, we had this kind of, very, very qual- qualified, very, very justified anger because there was zero reason why these police officers should have sold this kid. But think about it. I don't think that the protest after some point had so much to do with that. It was more like, this is our time. This is the time for the revolt. And it was a very, very strong experience and, and something that all the people who, who were there and who, were, who, who lived this experience, we still remember Anyway, so I give up the Communist Party and then I join the army. So I open my mind first time that there's things in the left beyond Marx and Lenin. So I open my mind to the new left to, to, or even to some anarchists. But again, the main premise that capitalism is bad, that the uh, United States are bad, Israel is bad, all that stuff, of course, these were unquestionable. Now, the army experience was one of the most useful experiences in my life because it really sucked, specifically my months in the presidential guard, but also in a way it changed me as a character. So it was the second big school after the communist youth because in the communist youth, the fact that you come from a well of family, that you you have this kind of bourgeois air, doesn't matter at all. You have to do your job, otherwise you're not a good communist. Something similar was in the army. So when I finished the army, I was a different person for the better. I was way more disciplined. I appreciated things like hard work, commitment in a way that I did not before. And I think this would play an important role in what happened next. So after the army, I go to the UK to do my PhD and also work at the same time. And I think I became a way more, a person who appreciated work way more after the army. That's why I said it's a useful experience. But still my politics were at that point, more or less anything that had to do with the left, I was open to it. So I was part of the student occupations in around 2000, 2010, 2000, late 2010. And the big change, the biggest change was me starting to hanging out with the people from what was then called the Institute of Ideas, what is now called the Academy of Ideas. People like Claire Fox, people like Frank Furetti. And the person who kind of got me into that group was my friend Ashley Frawley. So I'm very thankful to her for that. So with Ashley, in a way, we intellectually grew up together from 2008 and after that. So we were reading zizek were reading things like that and she tried she was the first one to tell me look most leftists are basically anti-humanist anti-human they're not for economic growth so basically you are a big loser you think you're this super radical but your ideas if you think about it they're quite similar with the ideas of the world bank or with the government you're for the nanny state and you want the state to intervene more in people's life and you think people are basically basket cases bamboozled by capitalism. And initially, that was a very hard pill to swallow. But by hanging out with these people and by having kind of listening to a different voice, I started appreciating the importance of individual agency and of the general idea of freedom. And I would focus on two moments. The one was when I was doing research in Occupy. And I remember, I found it very, very disheartening and something that this kind of worldview and the ideas that they would find in Occupy and the irrationalism, I remember I would rush away and there was a shopping center opposite St. Paul. And I would enter the shopping center and I would feel, okay, I shouldn't like this because this is like capitalism, but it feels better than these people over there, that, than like the Occupy group. So the experience with Occupy was interesting. I have to say, I was there more of, as a researcher rather as an activist, but I was supposed to be sympathetic to the Occupy activism. But the most important moment was a lecture by Frank Furetti, who was in one of our previous shows, that he gave in the Academy of 2012. And you can find it online. And the name of the lecture is From Existentialism to Neuroscience, Condemned to be Free with a Question Mark. So there he talks about the determinism and the anti-humanism of today's consensus. And he compares it with Jean-Paul Sartre's essay, Existentialism is a Humanism. And it's a brilliant, brilliant lecture. I must have listened to it five times. And then I read Sartre's Existentialism is a Humanism, which is a good uh, for Sartre's taking into account like how not good Sartre is. I think that's one of you, that's his best work. And it's a good defense of freedom in some ways and of individual agency. So after that, I said, okay, I'm done with basically determinism. I'm done with under humanism. So now I'm still a Marxist, but now I'm pro-enlightenment and I'm pro the idea of individual agency and pro-freedom. Okay, maybe not complete freedom. So we still need to tax these capitalists, these greedy people. But except from that, I'm for freedom. And this was a time that I was really, really into reading Marx. Seriously. I was in a reading group at the University of Kent with uh, Philip Canliffe. And it was a very interesting experience. And it left me one thing, which was a complete disdain from Ken- for Keynesianism. So I said, okay, now I understand why Marx was right. But oh my God, those who speak on his name on the left today, they're basically Keynesian. So we don't like engineers, but Marx is the way. Now, I had many questions though on Marx and on Capital, which I've read something like three times. And I couldn't answer them, but I thought maybe I need to do a bit more work. Maybe I need to study harder. And the big mo- the, the, the time that another change came was in 2013. So, I was trying to find, I was very skeptical of environmentalism. And back then, the big thing was not YouTube, it was podcasts in terms of ideas. So on iTunes library, I searched some like criticism of environmentalism. And I came upon a lecture by an Austro libertarian and anarcho capitalist called Walter Block. I don't even remember what that lecture was. Anyway, he was full on against. Uh, environmental. so I was like, well, that's, that's, that's cool. I have no idea who these Austro-libertarians are, but that's, that's good. And then on the kind of the suggested other, uh, not podcasts but iTunes, let's say episodes, there was a talk by Tom Woods, the, the Mises, the Mises or guy, which again, we might disagree with him, but I'm just giving you the facts here. And the talk was the Austrian school in the present crisis. So this was my first contact with the Austrian school of economics. And Woods, whether you agree or disagree with him, he's a very, very good public speaker. So I got into this, I got into this whole Austrian school thing. And first of all, I found one thing, that Austrians are not Keynesians, therefore, Austrians get the thumbs up. And then I started reading a bit more, the Austrians. And then I started reading a bit of Friedman and a bit of Thomas Sowell, but mostly on things that we already agreed. For, the fa- for example, for the fact that we don't like the new left, we don't like identity politics, we don't like, for example, anti human environmentalism. So I thought, okay, now I found some new allies, let's say, we also attack this, but I'm still a Marxist. And this, it took me some time till I realized that turns out I agree more with. These Austrian guys than with Marx. So then I was like in two boats. I say, well, I'm pro freedom. The Austrians are a bit better than Marx, but I'm still unconvinced. I'm I, th- I still think, you know, communism is going to bring us plenty and it's going to bring economic growth. I have to say, another book that was very central in my intellectual development was Daniel Benamy's Ferraris for All, which is an excellent defense of economic growth. So then I thought, okay, I like freedom and I like economic growth. Turns out I have more in common with these horrible capitalists and with these horrible, you know, these people that I'm supposed to hate. And then I start having Facebook discussions. No need to say my left-wing friends were completely freaked out. And there was a guy who kept, who kept posting comments on my, on, my, on my links who said, you are on such a decline. Like, how lower are you going to fall? What's next? Are you going to start liking Ayn Rand? I was like, who is this Ayn Rand? So he would post this like two, three times. Then I Google Ayn Rand. And turns out she has written something about the new left. The new left, the anti-industrial revolution. So I ordered this book. I read the first essays and I realized, oh my God, this person is saying exactly what I've been trying to say obviously 10 times better. Then I start reading The Fountainhead. Halfway in The Fountainhead, I stop because I hear about this Atlas Rag book and I can't wait to read Atlas Rag. So I read Atlas Rag, I finish it. Then I go back to Fountainhead. Then I read more, more of Rand. And then I realize that, okay, here we have something, something big. Now my, let's say, debut, and by that time I didn't know a single objectivist, I had to say. I would listen to some podcasts by, by Yaron or uh, some lectures by Picoff, but I was like, well, I'm quasi libertarian, quasi. Yeah, and Rand is not that bad. So in the Battle of Ideas of 2014, I'm on a panel with Yaron Brook. And the topic was why Ayn Rand is so popular. And after the talk, two guys, Nikos and George, come to me and they say, you know, we liked what you say. When we saw the program, we thought, oh, a Greek sociologist probably is going to be, obviously going to be against Rand. So that was my first contact with some people. And obviously it was the first time I was on a panel with Yaron. The previous night, I don't think I've slept more than like four hours. I was so excited. Like, oh my God, that's the I'm going to see real life objectivist. So from 2014 to 2016, again, I was more towards the libertarian side. I wrote my first book, which was a critique of the New Left. I used a bit of, you know, my old friends, a bit of Zizek, a bit obviously of of Frank Furedi, but also a bit of Rothbard and a bit of Rand. And at 2016, we got uh, with Nikos and George some funding from the Prometheus Foundation, or as it was called back then, I think the Objectivist Venture Fund. And we translated in Greek, The Virtue of Selfishness. So I got a bit more engaged with the work of Ayn Rand. And then next year, we would organize a big conference in Thessaloniki on objectivism. So then I started listening closely to Leonard Picoff's The Philosophy of Objectivism lectures. And it was the first time I really realized objectivism is something completely different. It's, 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 it's and much, much more systematic and correct than libertarianism. So it took me something like two, three years to, to understand the difference that, no, we're, all, we're not all libertarians. There are differences uh, here. And 2017, we go to Thessaloniki to that conference. I fly there with Andrew Bernstein, and I had one of the most memorable nights of my life. So we, we land very late. And we go to Thessaloniki to have dinner at around 12 o'clock at night because that's Greece. And I'm like, how surreal. I'm in Greece with a guy who's telling me stories about how he met Ayn Rand and stories from Leonard Peikoff. And I was like, that's life as it should be. And in that conference, we had uh, Greg Salmeri and Tara Smith. So that was, let's say, my official debut in kind of in, uh, with uh, being on the activist side, let's say, of, uh, of objectivism. And, and the year before, we had also translated, as I said, The Bridge of Selfishness. But the biggest event was that then, uh, Razi Ginsberg came into my life. So initially, he wanted me to be a trustee for what would be the precursor of the Ayn Rand Center UK. I wasn't really sure I want to get involved, as I suggested some other people, and then one day he calls says, so you don't want to be involved? And he kind of put me in the corner and said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll be involved. And our first event, for those of you who, for the very few people who remember, we got kicked off out of the pub. And I had to give a talk on basically a burger restaurant. And I had to stop every few minutes because the waitress were beating the burgers. And it looked like, you know, this sect with the, like uh, with the Jesus and the students, it was it, it was it was weird, but anyway. And then I, after that point, I started seeing myself that now I'm an objectivist. Uh, I want to be an objectivist intellectual, and I'm committed to being an objectivist activist. And then, uh, in autumn of two thousand eighteen, I joined the I joined the OEC, the Objectivist Academic Center. And that helped me to start kind of becoming more consistent in my understanding of objectivism and feel more confident as an activist. So a year later, some months later, I was a speaker in Ayn Rand Conference in Prague. And early this year, I got the position of director of ARI Europe. So that's the end of the journey. And you could say... Well, you've changed ideas many times. What makes you think you're not going to change again? Well, it's the first time that I really feel that I got to these ideas firsthand. I could give another episode of 25 minutes what were all my invasions and all the kind of second handness and all the rationalization during my time in the left. I hope that this is not the case anymore. But to close, so... I, I want to say I'm pr- really proud about this journey because A, it wasn't very easy, specifically if you're in academia, and it has cost me a lot of things and mostly friendships. So one of my three best friends wrote me off as a friend, not even when I started my uh, journey towards objectives, way earlier. And later I've lost also someone who used to be on the top, top five of my, of my friends. So these things happen. But what's the takeaway for the rest of you? The takeaway is that you should not give up on people and you should take ideas seriously because ideas can have a very big influence on people. So I mentioned some people like Claire Fox, Frank Furetti, Ashley, and on my objectivist days, who to, where to start? George, Razi, Tara. So you could be that person for someone else. So... We all form our view using our rational mind, but also influenced by cool people, by people we like and by people we admire and by people with whom we connect. So, yeah, take ideas seriously and engage with people and, you know, no no one is a lost cause. So, hope there was some interesting takeaways in this episode. Thank you very much and see you soon. Bye-bye.